church, and in particular in our chapel. In a moment, we'll be singing a hymn that I learned in Vacation Bible School. Vacation Bible School that we would line up outside the church and all the way on the sidewalk near the street, we could hear the first opening uh, hymn and it sounded like this fanfare. Right? Even all the alligators in Louisiana stood at attention when we heard that. And with that, we came in. I always thought that the Sunday School Board of the Southern Baptist Convention always wanted to widen the palate of those of us who were reared on the hot sauce of gospel songs. And so they included this song. It's a song that was written um, uh, well over 100 years ago. It was written by a, a Union Civil War survivor. Uh, he became an Episcopal pastor in Vermont and then wrote this hymn and submitted it to the Episcopalian hymn book group. They were producing a new hymnal. They said, we'll take the hymn, but you've got to write, uh, you've got to get a new tune for it because it was to the Russian him. And so Warren, who was an organist in New York City, said, I'll write something for it. And he did. And thus the tune and the text have come together. That's our opening hymn. Let's stand together and sing.
you join me in the litany of invitation and confession. The agendas of the world place many gods before us, but today we seek the counsel of the one true God. We listen again, wanting to know God who loves us and has hopes for us. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Therefore, we will not submit to the yoke of slavery. Let us celebrate the freedom that is ours in Christ, turning away from temptations that enslave and control. We confess that we can be selfish by trying to manipulate others. We confess that we cannot love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We pause for a moment of silent confession. Sisters and brothers, God meets us in the troubles of life. Let us bask in God's grace and let us find strength to begin again. God has forgiven us. Let us lift our voices in praise to God. Again, welcome to the worship of God at Northside Drive Baptist Church. During the summers each year, we meet here in our chapel rather than in the sanctuary. It's an opportunity to remember some of our origin stories. It's also a time to share the intimacy of being together and especially singing together. So welcome to the worship of God. There are guests among us, and we welcome that you are here with us today. There is on the edge of your order of service a welcome card. If you'd take a moment to complete that and drop it in the offering plate, it'll help me connect name and face with you, like a granddaughter, Courtney. We're glad you are here. And uh, uh, drop that in the plate, and it'll help me connect name and, and face with you. Also, for any of you who have a prayer request, would like to make a prayer request. It's an honor for our deacons and our staff to pray for you by name and by need uh, every week. So you could place that on the car, card and drop that uh, as well. Well, as we gather on this holiday weekend or leading to a holiday weekend, a lot of our people are traveling, but you are here, so welcome to be here. And did that opening song bring back any vacation Bible school memories for you? I think so. We, we used to march in, process in, with all sorts of things that uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that all of our Baptist forefathers and foremothers would uh, agree with in that tradition, but it was a celebration of uh, being a congregation. So for those good memories, we give thanks. As we prepare our hearts for worship, uh, Daniel Hedrick will be preaching today, and he'll be using the first text that you're about to hear from Second uh, Kings. I spoke about Elijah uh, last week, and then Elijah's uh, uh, successor was Elisha, who was a disciple and uh, a mentoree. And so he'll be preaching on that text today, so especially do we pay attention to that. And then the epistle lesson, I think Graham is going to be reading the Galatians text. That's a famous text on religious liberty and, and religious freedom. And so we open our hearts to these and we prepare to worship God. Welcome. Elijah is taken up by God into a whirlwind, and in his leaving, he blesses Elisha. A reading from the book of 2 Kings. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. 
But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle and he rolled it up and struck the water. The water was parted to the one side and to the other until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you before I'm taken from you. Elisha said, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, then it will be granted you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and he struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we come with thanksgiving for the warm summer days, the flowing rivers and streams, the beauty of the flowers, the voices of children laughing as they play, the more relaxed pace of life that allows us to enjoy family and home and travel. And like Elisha, we want to have a double portion of your spirit. We want you, God, to stay close and take our hand and show us the way step by step. But Elisha had to be separated from Elijah in order to step into Elijah's mantle and accept the blessing of your spirit. We are like that too. We want to feel your presence and your guidance every step, but we are human, and we must struggle on our own much of the time. We may want your blessing, your cloak of protection, your voice telling us, well done, but it is our job to find our way through this messy humanness, which tempts us at every turn to be satisfied with the blessings we have and just to be left alone. Forgive us for our complacency. We are blessed by your spirit. As we minister to those in our congregation who have grieved recent deaths in their families, Kathy Harris in the loss of her mother, Carolyn Herndon in the loss of her, of her niece, and my extended family through Ken's brother's death. We pray for others in our midst who are struggling with medical issues, complicated surgeries, and recovery. Disappointments and sadnesses of many kinds. We trust that they feel your presence through our caring. And we especially pay, pray for our pastors, James and Daniel, who take the yoke of caring for others on themselves so often and so faithfully. We are grateful for those in our flock who served creatively at Palifer and for those who will work on the Habitat build. We rejoice 
and the steps that many are taking publicly to move us all toward a kinder, more loving and forgiving humanity. This is the mantle of the spirit of your love that has been shown to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now let us join together in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, saying with commitment, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Christians are encouraged to live free in Christ and to live out the law of love, joy, and peace in relationships. A reading from the letter of Paul to the Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. Here ends the second lesson. Okay. Can you hear me now? Everybody? <laughs> okay. There we go. Hey, how is everyone this morning? I see some traveling faces that have been to lots of far places, and it's so good to see everyone here this morning. I'm glad you're all here. Well, this morning I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Jesus. Uh, uh, Leah already grabbed this. What is this? It's a house. It's a lighthouse. And do you know what lighthouses do? That's right. They help guide them because they shine a, a light. That's right. It goes around in a circle, and so it kind of shows all the land right there on the shore. Like Jay said, you guys are so smart. Well, you know, I was reading a book this week. And it was talking about light. And it reminded me that light, like Jay says, it's not so much that you see the light. It's what the light helps you see when it's on, just like the lighthouse. It shines and it shows the ships where the shore is. If it wasn't for the light, they wouldn't be able to see that. And I was thinking about all the times that we talk about light and specifically when we talk about Jesus being light. And so right here on the bottom of my lighthouse, look what it says. It says, Jesus is the light. And this is, uh, Leah's got the next part of the lesson. So Jesus is the light. He says in the New Testament, he says, I am the light of the world. But you know what Jesus also says? He also says 
to people that he's talking to, he says, you are the light of the world. Now, isn't that interesting? So, there's light in Jesus, but he says, you are the light of the world. So, what does that mean? Does that mean that maybe there's a little bit of light in all of us? And maybe do we think that light might be from Jesus? So, the light of Christ, it could be in all of us? Well, what would it be like if we were like these lighthouses and we shine our light, that light of Christ, for all and everyone to see? What would that look like? You know, this month, our church is going to be helping to shine some light for some people. We're going to be helping out the Georgia Alliance for Social Justice, and we're helping in a project called Ayudamos. Did I say that right, all you Spanish speakers? And that means, can you say that, guys? Say it again. We help. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be using some of these supplies in here. Can y'all take one and hold it up for me? Can you hold up one of these things? We're going to be taking some of these things. These are really simple things, right? Say what you have. Hold it up for everybody to see it. There's a washcloth and some deodorant, some shampoo, some soap, some a toothbrush, all these things. We are going to be putting these into little kits, okay? And we're going to be giving these to people that need them who are leaving um, facilities that they've been in to see whether they can stay in our country. So they, they're going back to some place, and you know when they leave these places where they're staying, where they're trying to figure out if they get to stay here or they have to go home, they are leaving, and you know when they leave, they don't have this stuff. And this might seem like really simple, not important stuff, but what if you had to go on a long journey and you didn't have your toothbrush and you didn't have your soap? Would you start to feel a little bit about being around other people? Maybe you might have bad breath or you might be a little smelly. This, this is a way that we can help, okay? And when we help like this, I kind of think that we're shining our light of Christ so that other people can see it. And when we do that, when we shine our light, I think that the light that we shine, we can help see Christ in other people too. And so when we help out these other people that need some help to go to the next place that they're going, we're shining our light, and that's a really good thing. Hey, you know, I know a song about light, and I was wondering if you knew it and you would sing it with me. Do you know this song? This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Will you sing it with us this time? This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. So this week and this month when we're helping other people who need help, like these people need help, we're gonna let our light shine. And we're going to help them shine their light, too. Because we all have our light of Christ inside of us. Let's close our eyes and say a prayer. Dear God, thank you for the light that comes from Christ. And thank you for that light being in each one of us. Help us to shine bright for all to see. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's go. Little ones, you guys come with me to the nursery. And big ones, you go sit.
Jesus describes the comprehensive nature of discipleship, a reading from the Gospel according to Luke. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go toward Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Lord. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, Lord, I will follow you. But first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus then said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. The prophet Elijah gets all the attention. Have you noticed that? He's the one who ascended to heaven on a chariot. I mean, he never died. And to this day, Jews save a seat for Elijah symbolically at the Passover meal. Even in Jesus' time, folks thought that John the Baptist and Jesus might be Elijah, I guess, reincarnated. But what about his protege, Elisha? He actually gets a lot more space in the book of Kings, which is two volumes, than, than Father Elijah. And this morning, I want to preach to you about the prophet Elisha's journey of discipleship, looking for insights into our own journey of discipleship. James's sermon last week uh, took us to Elijah's man cave. When he had fled from the presence of his enemies into the wilderness, and he was depressed, even suicidal, he was in a tough spot, and he cried out to God, I alone am left. And you know, it's tough doing it all by yourself, isn't it? I mean, that's a lot of pressure on a person to think that you're the only person standing between true religion and pagan idolatry. No wonder Elijah suffered from a case of prophetic burnout, or to use a Lampkinism, an acute case of prophetic colitis. That made him laugh, at least. I thought it was funny, for the record. It is in this terminal condition of existential burnout and malaise that Elijah learns he doesn't have to do it alone. Help is on the way. And, and so in the text, we find that Yahweh names a prophetic successor for him, a random farmer named Elisha. Uh, apparently, the older prophet was done killing all the prophets of Baal, so he, he finds the young man plowing a field. And the text in 1 Kings 19 says that he walked up to him without introduction and just threw a mantle over his shoulders. And, and the younger man, Elisha, realizing that he had been drafted into the prophetic army, is ready to give it all. He just asked for one thing, permission to kiss his mom and dad goodbye. And Elijah had no patience for such shenanigans. He reacts angrily. It was kind of like you just heard in the gospel lesson that, that no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Elisha wanted to look back even for just a moment, but, it, but if you're going to be a prophet, there's no time to look back. A prophet always has to be looking forward, right? I mean, ever attentive to the Spirit of God, which is on the move, right? And yet I believe, I believe that Elisha struggled with that kind of freedom. He did a fair amount of looking back in his life, at least in the beginning, and he, just like us, had a journey of discipleship. 
It strikes me that there are several insights from the story of Elisha for we Americans trying to be disciples of Jesus in the 21st century. And I think these insights apply at the level of individual and church and country. And the first insight is this, that we cannot grow in our life of discipleship by seeking to blindly replicate the past. Let me unpack that for you. In 2 Kings 2, the passage that you heard read this morning, the story is told that Elijah was about to be taken up into heaven. All the prophets knew it. Elijah and Elisha knew it. And the older man asks the younger one a very dangerous question. It's like he's a genie offering a wish to Aladdin. He says, tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha scratched his head for a second and thought about it. And he said, please, can I inherit a double share of your spirit? Now, isn't that a revealing request? In modern language, the highest end of humanity is to realize your true self, right? I mean, to thine own self be true, Polonius advises Hamlet. But nope, Elijah, Elisha asked for a double share of Elijah's spirit. He must have idolized the older man. He was, after all, his disciple. He learned everything he could from him. And so he says, give me double what you've got. But what do you think he was thinking when he asked that? that he could become twice the prophet that Elijah was, twice the man, twice as powerful, twice as influential. A double share, after all, would imply all that. It reminds me of the phrase you hear coaches sometimes telling their players, I want you to go out there in that field and give me 110%. Now, of course, I'm not an athlete, so I just heard that on YouTube. But on YouTube also, I heard a football player being interviewed after the game. He said, they said, how'd you do it? You know, they love to ask that question. How'd you do it? I just wanted to give my teammates 110%, he said. Forget that this makes no sense humanly or mathematically. We are in the realm of imagination and impossibility. Elisha didn't want to give 110%. He wanted 200%, a double share. Now, why did he ask for that? He had no idea what it meant to be a man of God, as, as he would be called in 2 Kings again and again. No idea, really, what it meant to be prophet. All he had to go on was the example of Elijah. And as Elijah ascended on a chariot to heaven, the young man yelled out, Father, Father! No doubt he thought of his teacher and mentor as a father. He'd asked to kiss his own father goodbye and then been rebuked by Father Elijah for doing so. And I believe this helps explain why Elisha asked for a double share of his spirit. If he, if he could just be more of a prophet than Elijah, everything would work out just fine. He always seemed to be in the shadow of his predecessor, Elijah, at least at first. After all, the difference in their names was just one letter. People were always getting their names mixed up. And it turns out that there was a rather distinctive physical difference between the two men, which I believed bothered the younger prophet. You see, Elijah was hairy, the text tells us, but Elisha was bald. We learn about this in one of the strangest stories in the Bible. Just after his mentor was taken up into the whirlwind, Elisha was walking to the town of Bethel, and a group of kids walk out onto the roadway and taunt him, and they say, some rough translation, go away, baldy, go away, baldy. They yelled that at him. Now, this was a man of God, right? A prophet. He had taken on the prophetic mantle of none other than the prophet Elijah. And he could rise above some schoolboy taunts, right? Well, it turns out there's no quicker way to hurt a man than to point out the ways in which he does not measure up to his father figure. So he calls out some she-bears out of the woods, and they maul 42 kids. If you don't believe me, Open your Bible. Note to self, when dealing with a prophet of the Lord, do not make fun of their hair or lack thereof. You might get mauled by a she-bear. So you see, Elisha was in the shadow of his predecessor. And there is a great emphasis in the stories of Elisha of replicating the miracles of the past. The rabbis in the Talmudic literature write that Elijah performed eight big miracles. That's a big deal, right? Eight. 
But Elisha doubled up. He did 16 of them. Elijah killed the prophets of Baal, but Elisha, what did he do? Well, he healed the waters of Jericho. He helped a woman pay off her debt with precious oil, which was in scarce supply. He resurrected a child from the dead. He healed Naaman of leprosy. And sure, Elijah got to ride a chariot into heaven. That's Okay, I'll give him that. That's pretty cool. But Elisha was such a big deal that when he was buried, the Bible tells us that a body was buried next to him, and just by touching Elisha's bones, the dead man came back to life. Walter Brueggemann says that the prophet was radioactive. His very bones were radioactive. Even the miracles of, of parting the Jordan River with the mantle are overt allusions to Moses parting the Red Sea. And so you see again in the text this, this need to be preoccupied with the past, with replicating the past, with, with hearkening all the way back to Moses, to the obsession of the prophets. It is as if blindly replicating the past would be a formula for success. It was as if Israel was in, a, in search of a formula, if you will, to make Israel great again. And of course, that's what Israel was trying to do when the book was written. The book of Kings was written during the Babylonian exile when there were no Israelite armies, no country at all, no chariots, no oil, no healing water, no health care. It was a time of great political fragmentation, and so the formula in times of fragmentation is to restore the golden era and to replicate, duplicate, mirror the past. But of course, the past is always more complex than we know. It, too, is weighted down with limitation, sin, and the burden of poor decisions mixed in with greatness, yes. It's complicated, isn't it? And so we cannot blindly follow the past in searching for God's will. We need to seek God's will now, in the present, because the greatest freedom comes from being free of having to look back over your shoulder for the forefathers' approval, because we do not seek their approval, we seek God's approval. Now, the final insight is this. We shouldn't blindly replicate the past, sure. But the last insight is that the text teaches us that the journey of discipleship is propelled by radical love of neighbor. The journey of discipleship is propelled by radical love of neighbor. The story of Elisha is about a man who in fits and starts learned how to love people different than him. He embodied the distinctive quality of Israel's theology of welcoming the stranger. And I've been thinking of, of radical neighbor love as July 4th approaches. We, we have so much to be thankful for in this country. I, I got a front row seat to that gratitude last year when I was part of a, a fellowship that many Northside drivers have taken part of with the Baptist Joint Committee on Religious Liberty. Our church has been a longtime supporter of the BJC. And I remember being in Colonial Williamsburg, and we saw the iron stocks in the jail at Colonial Williamsburg, and they told us that Baptists had been imprisoned there for preaching without a license. Now, if you want, I'll take you on a field trip to my office. I have my license hanging on my wall. But if the U.S. government required me to have a license, it would be a violation of the U.S. Constitution. It's not required to have it. It's just a, a practice that many churches have. But back then, there was no First Amendment. There, there was rampant discrimination against Christians who worshipped outside the official church of the colonies. And it brought home to me a deep gratitude that our Constitution pr protects our right to worship and to gather here this very morning. America is still, for all its flaws, a place where people are willing to die to come to start a new life. I mean, it is a place that people literally die to get to. It was hard to miss the horrifying image of the father and daughter this week, the, the face down in the Rio Grande, Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez and his daughter Valeria, drowned while trying to cross the river. They had made a claim for asylum in Mexico, but because of the U.S. policy of metering, they were told it would be several weeks before their claim could be heard. And so, in a fit of desperation, they tried to do it on their own. The latest victims of gang violence in El Salvador, 
fleeing unspeakable violence in their home country, try to make it in America, only to be stopped short in the cruel waters of the Rio Grande. I mean, if only there had been an Elisha to part the Rio Grande for Oscar and Valeria, striking the water with the mantle of his predecessors. If, if only there had been a prophet with eyes to see and ears to hear who could create dry land in the midst of a raging river for those fleeing gang violence. If only there had been an Elisha who could breathe life into the dead migrant child's body, raising her from the dead. If only there had been Elisha in Clint, Texas to pass out soap and water and enough food for filthy toddlers who hadn't had a shower in days. If only there had been Elisha in Flint, Michigan, when the clean drinking water was polluted by city managers wanting to save money. And now you can fill in the blanks with whatever troubles your soul. If only. If only. If only. Many of us stood symbolically at the edge of the Rio Grande this week, trying to put ourselves into the shoes of the father in the photograph, or perhaps the mother of the child. The text that you heard read, it speaks across the ages to us now. It has Elisha at the edge of the river, and he asked this question, which you heard in verse 14, and it should be our question too, in a way. He said, where is the Lord? Where is the Lord? And perhaps you asked that this past week. Where is the Lord? Where is the prophet who speaks for the Lord? in the midst of this cruelty. But you see, when we face eternity, the question will be inverted. The time for asking where God was and the prophet who speaks for God will be at an end because we will be in front of the very presence of the living God. Instead, we will be asked, where were you? When all of these things that troubled your soul transpired, what did you do with your life? And that is a dangerous question. I can imagine Elisha maybe thinking it as he stood at the edge of the River Jordan because his journey of discipleship was a journey from the God of his father to a God whom he could claim personally. And I encourage you to read his story in 2 Kings. You'll meet a disciple who was no longer asking at the edge of the river, where is the Lord? Because he began living a life of radical neighbor love led by God's Spirit. And when you live a life of loving neighbor, it is impossible to avoid God's presence. He saw the face of God in a Syrian commander named Naaman. He saw the face of God in a poor widow who had been hounded by debt collectors. He saw the face of God in a child who was lifeless, struck down by death, whom he then raised from the dead. And once he came to love the alien and the stranger, he saw God everywhere. And his legacy remained, and it grew until a Jew named Jesus began preaching radical neighbor love almost a thousand years later. And they called Jesus alien, too. They used dehumanizing language on him. They broke his body. They killed him. They pronounced his very life and actions illegal. They thrust him outside the protection of the nation state. And this would have seemed just another cruel chapter in the history of human violence until God raised Jesus from the dead. And because of that, we can have life. Because of Jesus, we can have a relationship with a God who is alive. But to begin our journey, we must cross the river just like Elisha did and learn who God is. Not the God of the nation state or any other idols which we might be tempted by, but the God who is here in this room with us, Emmanuel right now, wild with the Spirit, calling us to love God, to love neighbor fully, radically, completely. Amen.
It is our tradition that when a word is offered, an opportunity for response and dedication is given. For those of us who were able to be in church school downstairs earlier, it feels like a profound day has been afoot. We heard Graham Walker speak on a theology of Elie Wiesel, a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust, and uh, left us with that haunting image of that we are a link in the chain, either for the cruelty of the world or the compassion of the world. And uh, the sermon that we heard from Daniel leaves me with that tension as well. And so it's an opportunity for us to make a choice and, 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 and make a, a decision. We sing a song about children and God's love for us all as children. At this time, let's stand together and sing. Each time we get
All-loving God, we lift up our hands and hearts in gratitude to you. Receive these tithes and offerings as symbols of our joy that we share in serving the world. May indeed we continue to live out the noble aspirations of those who founded this world, this country we live in, that we have not yet gotten to, that we are all created equal. May we continue to aspire for that vision of wholeness and neighborliness, and may we be visionaries and servants of that. We offer this prayer now in Christ's name. Amen.